This podcast contains explicit language. I'm sorry, mom. Is this like a bad joke about the lab lady on her period? <laughs> Welcome back to the Grape Escape podcast, the international winemaking podcast. Um, I'm really excited today to be interviewing my friends, Laura and Damien. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hello. Hi. Do you want to tell us where you guys are joining our podcast from today? Yeah, so we're joining from Adelaide, South Australia. So we're living just south of the CBD, so downtown Adelaide. And it's uh, 11 p.m. for us. <laughs> and we just finished harvest in McLarenvale. So that was kind of the region where we're coming from, I guess. Cool. Um, so you guys don't sound Australian. I should clarify that you guys are Canadian. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> and Damien and I um, studied together at Brock University a couple years ago. Actually, do we really study together or do we just meet each other i don't remember if we had classes together. no yeah i think we crossed over we okay. crossed over when i was in first year and kent and everybody was right kicking around i'm glad yeah. i have friends who have better memories than i do <laughs> <laughs> um so damien and laura have both worked in the industry in niagara for a couple years in various capacities um, and then they decided uh, to head off to Australia and, yeah, just did a harvest in McLaren Vale. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that and maybe start comparing and contrasting the regions, the, the experience between Canada and Australia? Uh, well, it's not cold. And <laughs> that was the biggest, yeah, biggest thing. Um, so I guess... McLaren Vale in itself is quite interesting because you got to see a lot of warm climate varieties like Shiraz, Grenache, and Cab So, um, McLaren Vale as an area, I thought was, I was kind of struck by it because I expected a lot of Shiraz and dealing with that as well and dealing with raisination and those things, but it's actually not, especially this year, wasn't as, uh, as warm as previous years and we didn't have a lot of shrivel and that kind of stuff. Uh, but also, like, once we got here, there was tons and tons of wineries doing uh, kind of really fun stuff like Fiano and Vermentino and Barbera and Tempranillo and a lot of, like, Spanish varieties that are coming up. Cool. Uh, which is really a big contrast, I think, in terms of looking at Barossa and kind of how they really just hung their hat on Shiraz and they really stick to their guns for that. Um, but, yeah, McLarenville, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on and all kinds of fun wineries and really different approaches to winemaking. And I thought everybody was just really friendly and accepting. And it's like, hey, they're doing some crazy wine up the road. Let's go and take a look. And everybody's just really happy about it. There's not a lot of, I don't know. Competition? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it seems like there's good camaraderie in yeah. Clarenvale versus some other wine regions uh, in the world who, you know, they just don't want to talk to their neighbor or don't share their equipment or anything like that. So that, that was pretty interesting, but yeah. 
Not that Niagara is really like that either, but. Yeah. But I remember getting that sense as well, because I did, um, in 2012, I worked for Derenberg in McLaren Vale, and uh, yeah. it was super cool, and Derenberg's one of the big ones, but even there, they were like, go check out, like, ABC, and go check out, you know, like, all these tiny yeah. little things down the road, and yeah, so it's cool. Yeah, and I think Derenberg, too, is just, that's another actually really interesting thing that people shouldn't look at, because uh, Derenberg just opened uh, a cube that looks like a giant five-story Rubik's Cube. Um, and it's basically like a wine education center and somewhat of a Willy Wonka chocolate factory wild thing that's going in there too. Yeah. But I, th- I don't think it's open yet. I think it's going to be open, um, in the next couple of months. So yeah. So they're going to put in a brand new fine dining restaurant in there as well and have their cellar door and then kind of a really cool experiential, like sensory tasting area. So we're excited for that. Yeah. Chester was so crazy <laughs> he looks like willy wonka apparently they're gonna have like uh urinals that are shaped in the shape of ears or something or chester's ear so you're pissing in his ear it's like a really bad australian pun or something it's like wild anyway yeah i really want to go in there and check it out yeah so tell me more about like the harvest experience um in australia i remember it being a bit different like just winemaking technique wise compared to canada yeah i guess it depends on what winery you work for i think my experience working in niagara was with you know taz and andrew peller and a little bit of stratus and i think those places because you know you're always struggling for ripeness and trying to keep ferments warm all the time uh it's a little bit different whereas it was more about cooling here obviously there's big differences with that uh also the use of oxygen i thought was pretty good here nobody was like really afraid of oxygen with red wine making at all which was really nice to see um but i think a lot of that spawns from you know in-depth research and development that coming out of australia as well that they just embrace those kind of scientific i guess findings and they use them practically in the winery all the time so like for for example like all the roto fermenters notoriously reductive and shiraz and this grape variety notoriously reductive all had sparging systems for medical grade oxygen to be sparged through huh whereas other wineries around the world are trying to like cover everything in nitrogen the whole time right so yeah yeah, yeah. you said it was a bit of a cooler year um this year in 2017 um at least compared to, to other times. <laughs> Definitely when I was working in Australia, it was like 40 degree days forever. Yeah, we got a couple of those, but a lot. Of, it was a lot more rain apparently yeah. than mm. usual. I don't have a comparison, but we did. We were living with somebody from a viticulture company um, here, so he had all the stats and would always uh, tell us tales of 45 degree days and everything shriveling into raisins and stuff like that. Uh, but we didn't have that at all. It rained kind of intermittently, and then it was like pretty much relatively cool and sunny for most part of us. So nice. um, yields were up, sort of, I guess. I don't know. I don't have numbers exactly, but Cab Sauv did really well. Good. What kind of mix levels were you looking at, and were they significantly lower than other years? Hmm. Everything was in Bome. <laughs> Let's see. Maybe a little bit for Capsov and Shiraz, like if they got a lot of water, but they weren't significantly lower. And I mean, in general, I think it was probably a blessing so that people don't have to try to deal with hugely high alcohols in 
risk of our ass, then you got to pull it out with our own machines or whatever, you know? So yeah, in that sense, I think it was a really great vintage, but there was some pressure more so than they've seen in other years, especially the end rows and stuff like that, where there's a lot more growth because everything here is irrigation or on irrigation lines. Maybe not everything. There are some dry farm plots as well too, but uh, water is a really big issue here. Um, so a lot of growers were really happy that they weren't using a ton of their allocation of water. So that's something that's, that's unique to McLaren Vale, actually, which I didn't really realize until we got here is that a hundred percent of the water used for irrigation here is actually from reclaimed sources or from aquifers. So there's, it's like a hundred percent sustainable, which is pretty cool because nearly all of it is probably irrigated and it's about 7,400 hectares in McLaren Vale alone. Wow. Yeah, that's one of the starkest differences I found between like making wine in Canada and making wine in Australia. I mean, obviously, it's uh, cool climate versus warm climate or hot climate. Um, but yeah, irrigation, like nobody irrigates in Canada unless they're really crazy, I think. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the biggest differences just in general between cool climate and warm climate regions. And then of course, style that plays out into but yeah, that's, that's a good point for sure. Um, so what size of winery were you working at, Damien? So Chapel Hill was probably the same size as Taz, about, so about like 60,000 cases. I could be wrong, a little bit under, maybe. Uh, pretty vintage dependent, I think. Um, so they pretty much do mostly premium. They do have some rotor fermenters and entry level, uh, Parsons brand as well. And then most of the premium stuff was all single vineyard. Um, and then they did, uh, like most Australian wineries have their top Shiraz blend, basically, which they, uh, pick select parcels of and then blend that later on. So that was kind of the most of it. But they did a lot of kind of fun, cool varieties too. They did like Vermentino and Verdello and they brought in some other kind of interesting stuff as well. Cool. What's the climate like for white wines in the region? Mm, you've seen me Clarevale pretty much everybody ripped out Chardonnay. Uh, there was a Chardonnay glut kind of thing going on. I don't know if it was a real glut. They just didn't sell it. Um, and so those have pretty much been replaced with varieties that kind of can handle the heat a little bit more, um, which hence the Verdello and Vermentino and Fiano. Yeah. There's a lot of Fiano going in. Seeing a lot of kind of Italian varieties mm. popping up. A lot of Fiano. There's a little bit of uh, pick pool just been planted yeah, as well, which sure. is kind of interesting. I've had oh. some pretty intense nights on uh, Pickpool in, when I lived oh, in, really? in the south of France. Yeah. My, uh, <laughs> some of my co-hosts will, will have stories related to that. So, <laughs> oh God. Cool. Well, that's cool. So Laura, you're kind of in a different side of the industry. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm working for quite a large wine company. Um, so Accolade Wines, which, uh, I guess used to be, well, they started out as Hardy's, which is a family winery and then kind of grew into Constellation. And now it's a global wine company. Um, and I'm located at their head office, which is just south of Adelaide. Um, and I'm working in the bulk wine and commercial trading department. So essentially providing bulk wine and concentrate and juice to wineries and other customers. Um, we even have a couple of food manufacturing companies that use our products as well as ingredients. So pretty interesting. Yeah. Not very glamorous, but 
So you're exporting mostly Australian wines out to other countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two sides to it. So it's there's a huge export side, um, which is all bulk wine, various varieties and you know quality levels going to China, um, Europe, the UK, Canada, and a little bit to the US. But China is kind of the biggest, huge, huge, massive growth over the last two years for the export market. And then domestically, we sell smaller amounts to wineries. And we're selling a lot of concentrate as well. Because, of course, wineries here aren't allowed to chapitalize or anything. So they use concentrate um, as another method. Right. We've talked on the podcast before about sort of transparency in the industry and people really, you know, being honest about what they're doing. So what is your opinion on that? Maybe like labeling bulk wines under your own label and stuff like that. So has this opened your eyes in that sense at all? Definitely. Yeah. I had no idea how much of that goes on, you know, wineries buying finished wine and just sending it straight to the bottler and sticking a label on and calling it their own. Um, Do I agree with it? I'm not sure. I think in terms of, you know, a smaller, medium-sized wine brand, I think it's necessary in terms of business and numbers and being able to sell your product. Um, the market keeps changing. You know, one day people want Chardonnay and the next they want Pinot Gris or Grenache. So Yeah, and they don't figure like, oh, yeah, it took like five years to even get a first crop or whatever. Yeah. And if you got to move the flavor of the month, I think Pinot Gris is probably a massive one here. With people buying bulk Pinot Gris and just labeling it. Yeah. And then, of course, Moscato is huge, too. Um, just getting, you know, cheap, sweet, reasonable alcohol, you know, Moscato. That's just selling really well, especially with younger consumers. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really, really interesting. It's a huge market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, but I mean, there's an argument to be made, right? That they, it has to happen for the wine industry to exist, right? Like, yeah. And that's the thing. Like, if you, people need to put their money where their mouth is, if they really don't agree with that, then, then buy premium or super premium wine at above 20 to $30, you know? Yeah. And if not, then you have to be willing to let businesses stay afloat i think we all know like wine industry is not generally that lucrative <laughs> it's like it's a good way for a billionaire to become a millionaire is to start a winery so yeah uh yeah they need to make money somehow and it's not everybody doing it but if, if you get a huge order from a massive distributor of a wine that they really like and you just can't fulfill it you're going to walk away from that contract and then if they need more you know blend something that's close Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things is like consumer education and that, that it's clear on the label what they're getting into. Um, and (laughs) that they know if they, they're spending $7 on a bottle of wine that it's, you know, it's probably not, you know, um, terroir driven wine. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, but that's a, and I think that that's a different consumer too. Yeah. 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 But it is just, on that point, it is really interesting to see from my perspective, you know, when I do see what our customers are labeling some of the wines as, it's, it's quite shocking what, what they're putting. Um, I guess the regulations aren't that strict for that, for the labeling in terms of, you know, being factual of what, you know, what's actually in the bottle. So it is, it is quite surprising what you can get away with. But, uh, again, that's kind of the winery's choice, you know, being authentic or, 
or not is kind of up to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Canada, I think we're pretty lucky um, because we have the Cellard in Canada laws, right? Where if you're going to make a bulk wine product, I believe um, you still have to use 30% um, Ontario or Canadian grapes in the blend. And then you have to label it as cellared in Canada, which now people know the difference between like VQA and CIC, I think. Right. Well, some people know, (laughs) Um, but like what maybe do you know more details about that in Australia? Like what are they trying to do? I have no idea. I'm not going to touch that one. I have no idea about the legal labeling parts here other than I think it's like 15% or below you can blend it in other grapes without putting it on a label yeah you can yeah you can call it single varietal yeah they're not very strict they're definitely not very strict (laughs) yeah but going back to that ICB stuff too I think it's interesting because I've seen many times the ICB wines sitting on the BQA 100% Ontario shelf the LCBO (laughs) <laughs> Which, to me, that's a bigger, sizable problem, and maybe that's been solved. Um, but I think that's where the consumer is being kind of led astray, not only by maybe the perception of the wineries and not changing the packaging, except for the just the tiny little label that says ICB, um, and then having also wines that are 100% Canadian in the same packaging, at different prices, but then putting both of those on a shelf that say 100% VQA, that's kind of challenging, I think. And I've seen that numerous times, and I don't know why that's never been addressed with the LCBO, but it's not my... Um, Because LCBO employees barely know the difference, perhaps? The people who are doing the stocking aren't the wine consultants? So if they can't, and there's no mandate for it, then, I mean, then the reality is like a consumer doesn't even know the difference and it's like oh cab franc from blah 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 is 60 dollars a bottle or i can buy 1.5 liters of cabernet for 15 dollars how does that you know guess who's selling more (laughs) yeah no that's a good point and also i think i've complained on the podcast before about people coming into the tasting room and just being like can i have the cabernet and you just made it click in my mind that people are saying that not because they're lazy or uneducated, but also because it's on labels all the time. Like people just put Cabernet on a la- like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cab <laughs> soap, Cab Franc, and don't yeah. bother labeling it and whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we've had a lot of wonderful bottles of wine together throughout our friendship, um, and I know that yeah. you guys respect, you know, high quality and and uh, sort of terroir driven wines. Um, but just to sort of continue the conversation, even in premium wineries, there's a lot of wine manipulation happening, um, especially in, you know, warm areas like Australia or cool climate regions, you know, um, with chapitalization and that sort of thing. Um, so what are your feelings on that and like authenticity from, from premium wineries? Do you want to go first? Do you have the same opinion? <laughs> <laughs> you are of one uh... mind. You are married. You have the same opinion. For me, I think that it's at some point I just don't care anymore. And it's it does it taste good? And if it tastes good and it ticks all the boxes, then and I I call bullshit on people who say that they can pick out manipulation. Pretty much manipulation, whatever that is, like harvesting grapes is manipulation. So 
I mean, at, at what point are we just like, uh, gonna just eat raw grapes and be like, oh, it was hands off and fermented in my stomach and, uh, you know, whatever. It's like not, it's a product. It is a product at some point. Mm-hmm. So I think I, that's kind of, as long as it's legal and you're doing it by both like national and international law, you're not doing anything crazy and illegal or anything to jeopardize whatever people's health and you're following health and safety regulations. I don't. I don't know. I don't really have an opinion. And and if it tastes good, it tastes good. And if it doesn't, then you'll get called out on that too. Yeah, definitely. I've, we've seen a lot of uh, kind of new wineries around McLaren Vale and a little bit in Barassa as well that are moving towards the sort of natural wine movement, which has been really interesting. Um, some really, really different wines happening in those wineries. But personally, I have to say that I haven't tasted many that have been high quality mm-hmm. personally. So I think it's a basically what, what Damien said. I mean, if it tastes good, it tastes good. And, you know, if it's authentic and it's, um, you know, you're using high quality grapes and sticking to your authentic wire style, then, then I think that's, that's good enough and doesn't have to be, you know, fully natural and untouched. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would be vinegar. well the thing that's driving me crazy is the number of wineries who are like using the natural label or saying that they're doing you know natural winemaking and and they either are and their wines aren't great or they're not and they're like you're using sulfur like what do you like obviously your wine has touched some you know kms or pms as they call it in australia which i loved i loved that they call it yeah why (laughs) <laughs> what is with that? I don't they kept saying that when I first got there. Like I was like, what? is this like a bad joke about the lab lady on her period? And like, yes. I never. Re- and I was like, what? I don't get it. And they're like, oh well, potassium. I was like, the sign for potassium is K. Like this is not anyway. So, anyways, natural winemaking or people like people will say that you're a natural winemaker or you're doing natural winemaking, and you're not going to correct them because it's a buzzword, right? So, um, or like, you know, even if you're not doing organic viticulture, but somebody, you know, puts that label on you, you're not going to be like, oh no, like we're not certified organic. You know, you're going to use that for your marketing and you're going to let people put it in articles and in their reviews and stuff. Um, because it's, it's such a fad right now. Um, and it sells your wine, but I have a problem with that. I think that's bullshit. And I call bullshit on not being transparent about it and and acidifying your wines and not telling anyone and and claiming that you're just like doing hands-off winemaking i mean it's fine if you have to acidify your wine but fucking tell people about it i don't know yeah i don't know that's me <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know i don't really think the consumer needs to know everything like most people don't care yes yeah. start talking about technical winemaking and Laura's eyes like glaze over. It's like, (laughs) and I don't know how much information is enough information. And yeah, that's kind of, uh, uh, that's up to the brand. If they want to put every single thing that they add or egg whites or whatever, and vegans are going to go, I don't want like proteins from the eggs in my diet or something that whatever, if they drop it in the barrel or gluten free, Gluten-free people now asking about gluten-free barrels because 
wheat is used to put the heads on. What? During barrel process? Yeah. So, like, if you repair, I've had the pleasure of putting heads back into puncheons and, uh, not here. This is other places. And the, the correct protocol is to, like, make a, a wheat paste and put it on the edge of the came of the barrel and pull the barrel into place. And that forms a little bit of a seal until the wood hydrates. And so then people found out about this. And started oh people coming to wineries and ask for, for if there's any gluten in their wine. And it's like, I highly doubt that a, a gluten proteins are floating around after years and years, maybe at trace levels, but like, uh, worry about your cereal. I don't know. <sighs> That's my biggest thing is my, like all these people who are super paranoid about wine and all like, manipulation or whatever and then it's like the reality is that even you know most people drink like okay a couple of glasses a week or maybe a bottle or two bottles on the weekend or whatever or if you're in the wine industry you drink more but <laughs> they don't think about like the thing that they eat for breakfast every day or milk or stuff that they drink a lot of or ingest a lot of on a daily basis like oh that no, i don't care but I yeah. care about whether or not you used SO2, which is like. Yeah, the, the chances of you having a, a sulfur intolerance are like less than 1% of the population or something. And and people who say that they have like allergies to SO2, that's like a whole another misnomer. I'm pretty sure the IG proteins in your body that cause allergic reactions are way bigger than single molecule stuff. You have allergic reactions to proteins and stuff like that much larger than SO2 is a tiny molecule. Anyway, there's a lot out there. If anyone wants to do the reading, you can actually go and read that stuff, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I get personally offended as somebody who's in the industry and when people try to pull one over on me, I'm like, hey, like, come on, guys. But yeah. for the general consumer, you're right. Of course, you're right. And I've had this conversation with Dan before as well. Dan... Um, our mutual friend. Um, and it, it's, yeah, no, the, the general consumer doesn't give a shit. And perhaps you should put the information out there if somebody wants to read further into it for nerds like ourselves. But yeah, putting it on a label is just going to confuse people and make them ask questions about gluten-free wine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At some point, it's like, who cares? Does yeah. it taste good? Yeah. And that's kind of why I like the Australian show system too. Although I don't like really like how, you know, judging and all that kind of stuff in some way, it's, you know, people rely heavily on the critics or whatever else, which, and ignore their own taste. But I think in some way, because it's all like blind and everybody, regardless, you made it with unicorn tears and you harvested on like whatever full moon cycle, blah, blah, versus the guy who, you know, works hand in hand with any every single pesticide company or herbicide company or whatever that those two wines will get judged by the same panel and one will be better than the other you know it's very democratic in that way none of that shit matters until it's in the glass but there's there's an issue with the panel judging as well right first of all is it blind or is it sponsored by someone or whatever that's been an issue in australia um and then yeah, also like how trained are the judges right that's the other thing so mm -hmm. Well, they're pretty good at tracking reproducibility here. And judges who aren't reproducible and they get shown the same wines over and over again, they don't know what they are. And if they don't 
pass those reproducibility tests, then usually they get their scores get taken out or put lower or something like that. So, yeah. I mean, and some shows are better than others, obviously. I don't know a lot about the show system here, but I think there is some progression. And there's like a lot of training for a lot of those judges. The prerequisites to become a judge for that kind of stuff is it's not like, uh, you know, a random person who got into wine blogging and then they're sitting on the judging panel. Usually there are other winemakers and they've gone through AWAC training, which is like the wine, Australian wine assessors course. And, and a whole bunch of other stuff without having years of experience behind them and stuff like that. But wines will get missed and, you know, and styles will get missed and that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. And I do think Australia is a little bit further ahead than most other areas for that sort of thing. Right. And also for like research and innovation, like Australia is the place to be. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the biggest things that we've seen, like a huge amount of resources available to wineries. They have a problem. Uh, you know, they all pay a levy to Wine Australia per ton, I believe, of grapes. I'm not an expert on this stuff. Plus, also on the wine, I believe, and that goes into a big funding pool, and that gets divvied out between the Australian Wine Research Institute plus universities across Australia that do all kinds of work. And so, there's really if if growers have a problem or winemakers have a problem see where there's research and innovation kind of pockets that aren't kind of fulfilled that gets directly dealt with in a fast efficient manner that's not the same as most other countries where it has to be weighted to like you have to wait until a researcher picks it up and then it becomes a phd topic or it becomes something else and then you may or may not ever see those results or they may not you know have the resource to complete a study whereas here it's like get it get it done and i think that's why australia is so successful in terms of like volume and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really good funding here as well, just because it's such a big part of the economy. Yeah. In Australia. Yeah. It's a huge export. So they, they need to have, you know, that funding and sort of infrastructure yeah. to be successful. But I think people forget too, like people, I didn't really even, re- like I was really Eurocentric in a lot of my buying and you know the wines that i usually in australia was not you know the the first place that i would have picked but it was easy to get here we had connections here i liked a lot of the wines i didn't know a lot about them because they were so far away and a lot of the good wines like every country stay in the country Mm -hmm. um but like even mclarenvale has been producing wine since the 1830s so like that's that's a pretty long time that's not they're not new to this game. And there's all kinds of things that people don't really realize about McLarenvale and a lot of Australia that you hear people in Canada or talk about, oh, these vines are still own rooted in France. You know, there's a tiny enclave on some island or something. And they, you know, and then the reality is that there's pretty much every single vineyard in McLarenvale is own rooted and yeah. blocks for free, which is pretty cool. Like that's, you know, I didn't even really realize that until we got here. Mm-hmm benefits so. of being an island really yeah yeah so you like australia is is, is what i'm hearing yeah i'm gonna stay here we'll good see. yeah 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 i i have a lot of respect for the australian wine industry um even just like doing my master's thesis or my bachelor thesis so many papers that i referenced were out of out of adelaide university or wherever um And there was, yeah, there's clearly a lot of innovation and a lot of, like, people are passionate about it. 
So mm-hmm. they don't. Yeah, they're not as afraid of. I don't know how to put that. Like you feel a lot of Europeans would be afraid to go down a certain research avenue because it's you know oh it's GMO or oh it's this or that or whereas here there's like you know they're pretty embracing of science which is nice to see because you see a lot of wineries just like somehow don't think that science exists but anyway that's nice. yeah um, and all of the research that I've seen come out of Australia um, you know people recognize it around the world but like in Australia they start putting that information to use almost immediately. Like the wineries embrace it and, and move forward with the new technology like immediately, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. That's how you <laughs> run most businesses outside of in any other industry. You're not like, Oh no, we've been doing it for 150 years this way. Just because you prove that that's wrong. We're going to keep doing it, which is like, you only find that kind of stuff in the wine industry. <laughs> so, okay. Right. And, also in the White House of the United States of America. But (laughs) 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 Oh, Trump. Um, Well, cool. So, I mean, I've covered a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you guys about. So is there anything else you want to talk about, about Australia and how cool it is? (laughs) I have some, I wrote down a bunch of tech stuff. I don't know if you... Yeah, do it. Go. So research and innovation stuff. So I just read a really interesting thing, which I'm sure... Uh, all the natural people are going to like GMO vines. So there was some studies done here with um, mildew-resistant vines, uh, both for powdery and downy. And I don't remember the varietal that they used, uh, but they inserted one or two resistance genes, which basically made uh, those vines resistant to a very good amount to powdery and downy. Um, and then they also did the same thing without kind of uh, like using GMO technology and they just did it through crossing vinifera and rotundifolia. Um, and then the GMO vines were actually closer genetically. It was like 99.9% to the original parent vine, whereas the other ones were less. Um, but you can't use GMO crops here. However, it, it's kind of an interesting argument because if you had GMO vines, you could like eliminate most of the pesticides and herbicides used. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that being a, a discussion topic even when we were going through school. Like, yeah, GMOs are scary and everybody freaks out about them, but come on. Like, then we wouldn't have to be... But, like, vines are some of the only things that aren't really altered in terms of a crop. I yeah. think almost every other industry, whether it's wheat or corn or anything else, that embrace GMOs. Um, but it's weird that the wine industry has so much backlash, especially now with like so many people not wanting to have sprays and oh, I want like, you know, vineyards that are, are biodynamic where all you spray were heavy metals and cell, elemental sulfur all over everything. You know, it's like, eh, is that actually healthy? I don't really know. You know, yeah. like, you know, spray everything with, with copper and having a shit ton of copper in your soil is not really that great either. Um, and then there's the argument, okay, well, do you go down the road of conventional, you know, systemic and locally systemics? Whereas if you had these, these kind of vines, you could maybe just produce wine that's 99.9% identical genetically to the parent, but you don't have to spray. Yeah. And then like, you know, I think that's more powerful than people using one type of spray because it's all they have. So they just spray it every week, which I mean, here that doesn't happen, but in, in wetter climates, that's a big, 
a big thing. And then you get resistance and, you know, and fucking crazy mutated insects and shit. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, I thought that, that was something that was really interesting. And I, I remember talking about that years ago too. And, and somebody who was really into the biodynamic scene looked like they were going to fall over and keel over and die. <laughs> like, that, that we should just have all GMO vines. But anyway, I think that's kind of a, it eliminates the problem at the root of them. Uh, another thing that was really cool was Amarin's TCA-free corpse. Yeah. So game changer, I guess, here. Because uh, pretty much everything is under screw cap here, even high-end, super high-end wines. I think there's almost, must be everything. It's like nearly all wine is screw cap here. Uh, but this might bring some people back into kind of the old school closure. So that was pretty cool. They can produce corks with under 0.5 nanograms of TCA and eject off of the corking line uh, any thresholds above that using like fast gas chromatography. That was really cool. Uh, optical sorting. It's yeah. the way in the future I heard for cool climates, uh, especially playing around. I got the chance to play around with Pelang machines uh, in Niagara that were pretty awesome. Uh, which really kind of you can utilize the vineyard. To- it brings a whole new perspective into a vineyard where you can harvest and kind of do uh, like a tirage of different streams, basically, of ripeness, which was pretty cool. What else? Oh, varietal-specific amino acid adds. That was the other one. I feel like I read a paper, like, I don't know. Okay, something, but tell yeah. us tell us more, Damien. I- <laughs> I think it's AEB, but I'm not entirely sure, but I think they gave a presentation a while ago that I went to that they were talking about developing amino acid ads or nutrient ads. Uh, so not DAP, but like more complex nutrient nitrogenous compound ads that were varietal specific. So looking at certain amino acids that would, um, fall, if you follow the pathway, they should come out to certain aromatic profiles. Uh, through the yeast, consuming them and then spitting out your aromatic compounds, which was pretty cool. And then it also, then you would go into, okay, well, what about breeding programs for vines for specific amino acid profiles? Just kind of another, that's the extension of that. Um, but yeah, those are kind of the main ones. Oh, I worked with wine grenades. If anybody's heard of that, you should Google that. That's pretty cool. Where They're are like they? inexpensive mock systems that you can order and i think new zealand i'm not entirely sure but we trialed them at chapel hill and they were really cool and cool. so they're like a mock system that works off of wi-fi and whatever and you basically can do mocks through these little cartridges which is pretty cool for a smaller winery that doesn't want to invest in a huge mock system it might be something that's uh, interesting cool well, maybe I'm just going to use you as my like tech consultant, my tech and science <laughs> consultant from now on. Because <laughs> yeah, the, those are a lot of great um, innovations that are that are coming up, and it's it's good to stay on top of. And it's hard to, um, well, it's easy to to just put your head down and work in a vineyard for eight hours and then go to bed, you know. So yeah, uh, I wouldn't say it's easy, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't make you want to go and read Wine Business Monthly or something. You know? Yeah. That's for, for sure. sure. I, yeah, I would encourage people to. It wasn't that hard to work here. I mean, if there are people who want to go do vintages abroad, it was actually quite easy to get a working holiday visa as under 30 year olds here. 
Um, and their jobs are plentiful. I've had a really great experience with the winery that I worked at and, um, it was easy to do stuff in South Australia mm-hmm. just cause it seems a little bit rural, but you can get cars easily. There's a beach, there's vineyards, Adelaide's close. I think that's why you want to stay here so much. Yeah. We definitely felt like there was a real sense of community in yeah. McLarenville. And I think that wasn't, that wasn't just that we had a few connections when we arrived, but even the, you know, strangers that we met in the industry and outside of the industry were just so welcoming and friendly. And that made us feel really comfortable. Um, and it helped us, you know, make new connections. I started, I did a few months, um, working casually in a cellar door for a small, uh, family winery as well when we first got here. And that was really good experience for me. Um, as Damien said, it was really easy to just pick up, you know, some casual hours here and there. And, um, you don't need a ton of money to have a decent quality of life as well, which is really nice. Yeah. Cause a lot of Australia is really expensive. That's the one thing. It is really expensive to live in most parts of Australia. Yeah. In the big cities, it's really expensive, but, uh, yeah, McLarenville is really, really, really great for that. And the beaches are really good. Yeah, exactly. The beaches yeah. are stunning. That's pretty good. Although we were always worried about the shark sightings that yeah. would come up most weeks. <laughs> I had a good, that was a good story when I went surf, my failed attempts at surfing. And one of the first times I was out on the beach trying to get the hang of surfing a little bit. And everybody on the beach, I was facing, you're facing the beach waiting for waves to paddle into. And then everybody on the beach got up and started pointing at me. Which oh, was no. terrifying. I thought it was like a shark, but it was just like a pod of dolphins who were like surfing along and like wanted to hang out, which was kind of, that was pretty cool. But it was, I nearly shit my pants because I thought it was a shark. I thought it was going to get eaten before harvest. <laughs> That's not conducive to winemaking at all. And then there was also the, um, incident with the snake. Oh, yes. We ran in. There are lots of snakes here. Snakes and giant spiders. That's, that is the one, you know, trade off. You deal with snakes. And giant spiders. Yeah, but David and I decided to go for a short hike in... Um, it was in Sandals Gorge. In, in the gorge, yeah, which is right, you know, just north of McLaren Mill. And it was a really hot, dry day, and we kind of hiked down into the gorge where there's a little river at the bottom. And just before we turned the corner, I said to Damien, you know, down here is probably where we're going to see snakes because there's water. And we turned the corner, and Damien's in front of me, and I have never seen anyone jump so high. <laughs> he nearly jumped out of his skin. Yeah, it was oh huge. It, it was, was a, a massive. A meter and a half red-bellied black, black snake. snake. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Which can kill you. Which can kill you. Yeah. So I was pretty terrified. And I didn't know which way it was going because it was so long it covered the whole path. You couldn't tell. Yeah, that was not fun. Jeez. So we ended our hike. We ended our hike and went for a pint. <laughs> that's great um so i guess we always end the episode with a segment that i call wine or wine where you can either complain about something or recommend a wine Uh, and i guess your complaint would be about snakes and spiders (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes so um do you guys have any wines that you would recommend or wineries that you really love down there there's so many i don't know I definitely have a wine um, that we had recently. Oh. Actually, I've had it twice recently, and it it was outstanding. So it was um, it's actually from Barossa, and the brand is Torbrek, which I think is 
quite a well-known brand in Barossa, but their Roussin, Marsan, Viognier that we had. Um, we went to their cellar door, actually, which was brand new and stunning. We had it there, and we bought a bottle of the RMV, and we brought it home. We had it with dinner, and it was just stunning. Just a beautiful, you know, well-balanced, big, aromatic, nice white. Um, that's definitely a standout for me. Oh, there's too many. I don't know. I thought that that's just the diversity in McLaren Mail. You can just be happy shopping all over the place. Because you have really bold fruit forward styles. You have more restrained European styles. And then also you have kind of like, I don't want to say fringe winemaking, but maybe like more oxidative and wild ferment kind of stuff too. And it's, you can find there's something for everybody there. If yeah. you're into reds, because there's not a lot of whites. Really, I think 54% or something is under Shiraz, and then the rest is mostly reds. Um, We've seen a lot of really good Grenache. Yeah, McLaren Vale Grenache, that's like the most understated. And it's, and like here, it's a big deal already, but I think internationally, it's just starting to get recognized. But I think it's one of the only places in the world where they produce world class Grenache and it stands on its own as a single varietal bottling for sure. And mm-hmm. the wines are super elegant, and it's like Pinot, but you're not disappointed nine out of ten times. <laughs> it's like it's really generous, and but they're lighter, and they're you know, I think they really capture a lot of the sense of place. But I, and also Cab Sauv, when you get the right spots, there are little pockets of Cab Sauv in McLaren Vale that are on red soil that are amazing, and a lot of them go into Grange, and a lot of the growers sell them off to those high-end brands, but a lot of them also put a little bit away to bottle up for themselves. So yeah, that would be like two. Although Shiraz is the biggest, I think, Grenache and Cab Sauv do really well. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, those are great recommendations. I appreciate it. I, I'm so jealous. I miss it so much, and now that we've been talking about it for a while, I'm like, <laughs> ah, shit. Yeah, that's a cool yeah. place to be. <laughs> So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and um, I miss you guys, <laughs> but I'm really glad that you found somewhere that, you. that you really, really enjoy and you seem really happy there. So congrats and all the best in the future. And yeah, come visit because we, yeah, we have lots of space. So you're always welcome. Good. Well, I'm going to let you guys go to bed because I think it's like midnight there. Yeah, it's midnight. Almost. Shout out to Richard Andel. Thanks, Richard. Hey there. If you're still listening this far into the podcast, you must really enjoy it. Please follow the Grape Escape podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Send us some likes and comments there. You can also subscribe and rate us and leave comments on iTunes or subscribe on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers.